The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, I feel like we haven't recorded in... in, Oh, by the way, Paul, this is me starting. I feel like we haven't recorded in a month. (laughs) Has it been a month? This is the the perfect energy. Um, I I mean, a little bit disappointing. Again, everyone knows my favorite thing is when you actually steal yourself to begin and sort of choose your energy level. This one I, I like very much, just just for feedback for you for, <laughs> for next time. It feels like it's been it feels like it's been long. I think it's only been like two weeks, but it feels like it's been it forever. Does. Just and how and this is a hot cakes episode, which we haven't done one of those in like four or five months. And uh, the great Dr. Rahul Ganatra has he's been on paternity leave, and that is that is part of it. But also, I think Paul, we're just lazy, and this is pretty scary for us, isn't it? Yeah, well, right. It's I live enough of my life being worried about being called out about my ignorance. I don't need to highlight it um, on a weekly basis. So, yeah, it, but I, I'm glad to be able to do it again or at least hear you guys talk about articles, which is going to be the format tonight. So with us tonight, I've already mentioned our resident epidemiologist, the great Dr. Rahul Ganatra and a special guest, our chief editor of the all new Curbsiders Digest, which started coming out. I believe it was in August. Uh, Dr. Nora Toronto. And uh, you're going to hear them give you some picks of the week, talk about their some articles here. Rahul is going to teach us some critical appraisal. I will remind you that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME and mock credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And Paul, would you remind people, what is it exactly that we do on this show? Yeah, Matt, we are generally the internal medicine podcast, and we typically use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, as our faithful listeners know, this is the this time the experts are ostensibly us. They're really the only expert here is Rahul. And then we're just um, we're here again trying to minimize sounding ignorant, um, but excited to hear about some some new and exciting practice changing articles that have come out relatively recently. And to remind the audience that we're going to take a deep dive. Actually, we have two deep dive articles. We have two kind of hot takes, like quicker takes. But for the deep dive articles, we're going to use a hot cakes rating score, uh, which goes from zero to five. Five meaning like this is practice changing. Let's implement this right away. Zero meaning eh, it's, it's needs some work. Uh, not not ex- <laughs> <laughs> Won't be changing anything for us. And then the rest is kind of in between there. So Let's start off. <laughs> That's a really narrow window you just <laughs> <It's>, defined there. <laughs> uh, let's start off. Nora, why don't you give us a pick of the week before we get to the first article? Awesome. Hey, guys. So glad to be here and to learn from Rahul. Um, my pick of the week is one of the many TV shows that I watch in my little free time. Um, so I, I just finished binge watching made on Netflix, uh, which is, I think it's nine or 10 episodes. It's based on a book by a woman, uh, about kind of living at the poverty line with a little girl in, uh, the Northwest, uh, part of the country and, uh, how she, uh, kind of worked and, uh, experienced, uh, intimate partner violence and, uh, uh, managed to find help. It's really, really moving and, uh, pretty, pretty wonderful, wonderful drama, uh, really pulls at the heartstrings. 
This sounds a little heavy for the free time of yeah. a of a medical <laughs> resident. Um, it definitely is. Actually, one of my primary care patients, who's a social worker, recommended it to me, and she was like, <laughs> "I can't stop watching it, but it's way too close to real life." And so, so it it is too heavy, but it's also really, really excellent and well done. Well, may- maybe have a glass of wine or some ice cream, exactly. something, you know, treat yourself a little <laughs> bit while you're... <laughs> Don't worry. I also watch a lot of Ted Lasso, so we're, we balance okay, things that's, out. That's yeah. a good balance. Yeah. I'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, uh, let's... Paul, I think we should publicly start keeping a list of the things you will never watch or listen to. Uh, Hamilton, Hamilton and Ted Lasso are right up there on that list at this it's point. It's a pretty short list. I'm not really that big a contrarian, but yeah, those two are just... I'm just sorry. Life is too short, my friends. I'm, I'm not trying to yuck anyone else's yum. Glad they like it. All right. Rahul, uh, why don't you give a pick of the week and let's hope Paul approves. Yeah, so already feeling nervous about what Paul's going to think about this. Uh, So uh, my pick of the week is actually another podcast. So listeners, if you have any time left over after listening to every single Curbsiders episode uh, in our back catalog, you might want to check out Freakonomics MD. Um, And this is sort of up my alley because this is also a podcast that features critical appraisal. So this is hosted by uh, a physician and economist um, at Harvard, uh, Dr. Anupam Jaina. And uh, it kind of covers questions where uh, research questions where the design of studies to answer them is just really fascinating, really unique uh, type of questions and answers. Um, uh, Dr. Jaina and his research group did uh, an investigation that was in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago now that basically used the timing of kids' birthdays to ask the question, uh, are kids born in certain months of the year more likely to get influenza? And that seems like kind of an absurd question. But when you look into it a little bit more, it turns out when a child is born has a lot to do with how easy it is for the kid to get a flu vaccine. And so that kind of is like a, a, a type of study that illuminates a lot of things we might not kind of um, think to to know about the world around us. Right. Just a fascinating, fascinating way of looking at things. So Freakonomics MD. Paul, for a second there, I thought that he was drifting into the um, what are this the astronomical signs? Uh, yeah. I was trying to remember the <laughs> yeah. study. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for well. aspirin, yeah, there was a ISIS two. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they right, of course. in one of the early aspirin studies, I guess whoever the publisher was like kept making this person go back and look at the data again and again, and then finally they just kind of threw. Uh, I guess they they threw in the astronomical sign. Yeah, astrological, yes. not astronomical. Not astronomy. Yeah. It's astrology. <laughs> Astrology. Right, this yeah, is this real science on. we're talking about here. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I. I don't know much, Nora. Come on, you a Virgo. <laughs> I would like. <laughs> I would. Burn. I will quickly recommend a documentary that I, I just recently watched on on Amazon Prime. It's it's called Kid Named Scott. It's about uh, Kid Cudi, the the rapper. And hmm. what I thought was interesting about that, I, I do like his music. His first album came out when I was in med school, and he his he's kind of raps about like his mental illness depression things like that and still somehow manages to pull it off in a way that i like uh and and i think a lot of the a lot of what the documentary was about like his struggles and also about how he was really one of the first uh, artists at least in in that genre to actually talk about those kind of things now it's pretty commonplace and uh so i would recommend that it's uh there's some weird uh, interviews with Shia LaBeouf mixed in there, if that's sweetening the deal for you, Paul. But it's uh, 
it's it's interesting. I just love music documentaries, so I I watch a lot of them. And uh, Paul, did you have a pick of the week? Did you? So this is completely off topic, um, and we can even cut this out. But do you have you ever seen the the Rob Cantor music video for the song Shia LaBeouf? And it's like this narrative song about fighting Shia LaBeouf to the death in the woods. And, but there's a, <laughs> yes. live per- there's a live performance of it that is magnificent. This is not my pick of the week, but I recommend anyway. This should be. I went to college with Rob Cantor. He was, really? my, he was my organic chemistry grad student instructor. That's incredible because Tally Hall, the band that he, he was yes. in before he did his solo stuff, is also outstanding. So that's, Tally uh, Hall. See, see those, now the cool points are, are fully earned and all, <laughs> all, you can redeem them for the rest of the year. That's amazing. Um, Thanks, Rob. <laughs> I was going to recommend two incomplete projects. I'm pulling a Stuart. Um, one is a book that I've not finished, which actually my nemesis, Jeff Colburn, recommended previously. It's uh, Roman Blood by Stephen Saylor. As a reminder, it's this first person detective novel that takes place in the year 80 BC in Rome. And there's this guy, Gordianus the Finder, who gets involved in a patricide and tries to find out sort of what the truth of the matter is. And so far, I'm enjoying it very much. Um, it may it may end badly. I don't know. And then the other one, I, I just I thought of this as we were talking. I think Dune, I watched it on HBO Max like an idiot. Um, I need to go watch it in IMAX. I, I think it's it is a masterpiece, and I think once it's seen in total, it's going to be uh, like a big big deal. Like it really is just a remarkable work of art. So um, I'll throw those three things out there. So Rob Cantor and the Shia LaBeouf song Dune and, and Roman Blood. So go go have a good time. That's a week's worth of stuff. And then Paul eventually will be having a spinoff podcast just called the first 10 minutes where paul just gives endless picks of the week off the cuff (laughs) yeah my my mom will be the only listener it'll be great (laughs) hey curbsiders how's your sleep i'm gonna be honest with you let me open up a little bit personally i struggle a little bit with sleep you know i i could fall asleep but sometimes i i'm tossing and turning in the middle of the night and i have i have trouble falling back asleep So I need to do everything that I can to make sure that I'm getting the rest I need because we're all healthcare professionals. We know how important sleep is. And that's why I love my Birch mattress. This is a giant, beautiful, comfortable mattress that was shipped right to my house. It was wrapped up like a burrito, cut the thing open, it inflated, and right away you could sleep on that thing. And my partner and I, we love this mattress. Actually, our kids love this mattress too, and uh, several of them have suggested that we switch bedrooms, which I'm not going to do. But let me tell you, Birch really helps me get the best sleep that I can, which I know it's never going to be perfect, but with Birch, I think I'm doing better than I was with my old saggy mattress. So let me tell you, Birch is made right here in America with three materials sourced straight from nature, organic latex, New Zealand wool, and American steel springs. Birch comes right to your house with free shipping, and they have free returns. If you don't like it, you get a 100-night sleep trial, and they also have a 25-year warranty, so you don't have to worry about this thing not lasting. It's going to last. If you don't like your mattress, they will come and pick it up, but I'm not worried about that. You're going to love this thing. So visit birchliving.com slash curb and check out their products. And Birch is giving $200 off all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. I think it's time to move on. Nora, you're going to tell us about Emperor Preserved. 
why do we care about this trial? And, you know, tell us tell us the basic facts of it. And we're going to get into it. Rahul is going to help walk us through the meaning of this and and any point at, point at any holes in this study, if there are any. Awesome. So excited to chat through this today. So we're going to talk about Emperor Preserved, which just came out in the New England Journal uh, about a month ago. It's by Anchor at Al, a bunch of different co-authors who helped with it. And it looked at SGLT2 inhibitors, specifically empagliflozin, and whether they decrease mortality or the risk of hospitalization in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And so this is one of the first studies looking at uh, SGLT2 inhibitors in uh, HEF-PEF, so heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Can I can I interject, Paul? Did you know that there's another study ongoing? No. Oh, oh yeah, no. it's with dapagliflozin, and you know there was a DAPA HF trial. So what do you think this one's called? I, I can't even come up with something funny, because I know you're just waiting to break my heart. So what, 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 what is it? No, what, what do I, they I was do? hoping you would say DAPA, DAPA Hef Pef. It's it's not it's not it's it's deliver. It's the deliver trial. I don't know where they got that, Paul. But that's there's not been a deliver trial before. I don't know. Not. Or the, probably yeah. the cardiologists are just. It was probably like an endocrinology just, trial, and they're just ignoring it. And they're just like <laughs> they're just picking up all the money that was left on the table. Good for them, I guess. That's great. Okay, so the deliver trial is ongoing in uh, with dipagliflozin for HEFPEF, but all right, Nora. So uh, the the emperor. Uh, preserved trial looked at empagliflozin, not dipagliflozin, and uh, looked at uh, folks who were getting empagliflozin 10 milligrams once daily compared with placebo, um, in addition to, to other usual heart failure therapy. Um, it was a double-blind randomized control trial, and it was randomized one-to-one. Overall, the primary outcome that uh, the study was looking at, which is a common primary outcome, was this composite of cardiovascular death and hospitalization for heart failure. I wanted to ask Rahul about this, uh, looking at this, the way the way it was set up, anything here that, because this, this, you know, spoiler alert, this was a pos- positive trial. So we're always looking for signs of bias or just anything that seems funny to you about the way it was set up. Yeah. No, I think it's really useful to uh, use your knowledge of the the top line results of the trial to guide your appraisal. And what I usually start with for a positive trial is to look for sources of chance and bias that could uh, explain that or that could make this uh, make these conclusions likely to be wrong. And I'll just uh, telegraph my feelings about this. I, I have not been able to identify a lot of problems that make me question my interpretation of the results. But you know, since uh, Nora it was just talking about the the primary outcome, you know, thinking about a composite outcome for a study like this, you want to look at the individual components and make sure that those are all things that uh, you as the treating clinician are interested in and things that are patient-centered. Um, it's not um, unheard of to include um, laboratory measures uh, or other kind of surrogate endpoints in a composite outcome. Things like that can make it easier to accrue uh, enough events in your study, but those are not necessarily uh, always patient-centered. So off the bat, I'm, I'm really happy that this primary outcome includes things that are important to patients. Yeah. And then this, Nora, there was an, can you talk about the BNP criteria for this? There was, there was a cutoff as part of the, it wasn't just an EF, like they had to have an EF of at least 40%, and then there was a, a certain 
NT pro BNP cutoff? Yeah, a kind of an interesting set of criteria for inclusion. Um, the NT pro BNP cutoff, in addition to uh, heart failure with an ejection fraction greater than 40%, was uh, greater than 300. Um, and then in patients with atrial fibrillation was actually greater than 900. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, Rahul, what your thoughts are about, about those numbers. I know that sometimes NT pro BNP can be falsely low in patients with obesity. Um, and and uh, so I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, this always makes me, uh, triggers my thinking to just take a look and see uh, how many patients did this um, exclude from the trial. Uh, if a trial enrolls, you know, the vast majority of patients who are screened, that makes you feel really good that this is not a highly selected population, makes you feel good about generalizability. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, if a trial enrolls only a small proportion of patients screened, then that raises my concern uh, for selection bias and, and limited generalizability of these results. Um, so, I mean, it, as is common in many large clinical trials, uh, many specific medical problems were exclusions, things like uh, cancers, liver disease, COPD requiring home oxygen. So there were a lot of ways in which patients could get screened out of this study. Um, but it, looking in the supplement, we it, they have indicated clearly that the most common reason for exclusion was actually not meeting the NT pro BNP criteria. So I'm not too sure what the significance is of this. We were talking a little bit before going on air, Matt, about, you know, it should be pretty easy for the patient with heart failure to meet the NT pro, pro BNP criteria of 300, but it just makes me wonder uh, a little bit about um, are the patients who are going to generalize these results to, would they have met the inclusion criteria for this trial? And I think for the most part, this is not too bad. Yeah, because I, I think in clinical practice, when when you have a trial like this, people remember the top line results like empagliflozin reduces heart failure hospitalizations. They're not going to remember, oh yeah, but the NT pro BNP has to be 300. Maybe the cardiologist that ran the trial will, but probably your average person is not. So in terms of the overall results for this trial, trial was a positive trial. Um, it showed uh, decreased rates of the primary outcome composite uh, event in uh, the empagliflozin group compared to the placebo group. Um, it did also have a decreased rate of hospitalizations, specifically looking at that secondary outcome, though uh, not decreased rates that were sig statistically significant for cardiovascular death or all-cause mortality. Importantly, this effect was uh, uh, independent of diabetes status, so uh, persisted for both patients with and without diabetes. And uh, there were a couple of other uh, other kind of important secondary outcomes and adverse effects, but uh, we can pause there for a minute. Thank you, Nora. That fantastic walkthrough of a really meaty paper. This is like the longest method section I have read in a long time <laughs> and uh, lots of rabbit holes to go down there, but I will uh, restrain myself. The, the, the things that you know, I'm thinking about looking for sources of uh, chance or bias that could explain a positive finding. Uh, in fact, I'm identifying sources to the opposite. The fact that about 20% of patients in both groups stopped taking the study drug is something that would tend to bias towards the null which makes me wonder that, you know, is the magnitude of effect um, in, in the real world actually greater than what we're estimating in this study? So that's great. Um, the primary outcome was unchanged from the protocol to the 
final publication, which is always a good thing. Their subgroup analyses all make sense. Um, there's even a little bit in there that kind of uh, generates hypotheses about how these uh, how uh, impactful closure might work. Uh, the benefit was a little attenuated in patients on a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist at baseline. So that makes me wonder uh, if the if the mechanism uh, is as a diuretic is what really drives this, or if it's reduction in uh, fibrosis and improved uh, left ventricular function that you tend to get with uh, drugs like spironolactone. But taken all together, these results are really exciting because this is the first major trial of patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction to actually meet its primary endpoint. So I'll stop there because I don't want to influence your your hotcakes rating. <laughs> Nora, what, so how many hotcakes would you give this? Five hotcakes we've decided is a full stack somehow, arbitrarily. Sounds right. It and, sounds right. <laughs> I mean, we had a whole validated... Yeah scale at one point that and we just, now just re thrown. remember this episode is called spooky to tofurkey cakes so if you want to modify you know i don't know what kind of hotcakes these are are they spooky is there tofurkey in them or is that on the side you tell me i don't know if i want tofur <laughs> five tofurkey cakes myself but uh i'm <laughs> maybe it's tofurkey sausage yeah. on the okay. side with your hot sounds, cakes. that sounds better <laughs> um, I, I am pretty excited about this. I think it's going to change my, my practice quite quickly. Um, so, so I would say I'm, I'm at four and a half hotcakes for this one. Paul, is this, what do you, is this going to change your practice? I mean, do you think this is going to start to become widespread pretty quickly? What's your gestalt about it? Yeah, I mean, as we've discussed, because I'm a coward, I'll probably wait until there's, you know, an official guideline or someone to tell me it's okay to do it. But I, you know, I think... Like, yeah, I think this is actually a really important and exciting. I don't know why I don't see more people marching in the streets talking about this. Like, I think this is right. actually a, mm -hmm. a really big deal and really exciting. And I, I expect it will catch on relatively quickly. Yeah. And and looking at, it, I think 20% of the patients stopping the med, whether it was placebo or the the SGLT2 inhibitor in this one, the and, and I looked at the adverse events that were reported, and it looks like hypotension was one of the, it was about 10% of patients and uh, there was no difference in renal failure. It doesn't look like in the groups. There, the, the other one, there was a slight increase in urinary tract infections, which I think in the big like registry studies of SGLT2s hasn't really panned out. Like that was a big worry when they first came around. Definitely the fungal genital infections. That's something. So I'm not sure exactly why so many patients in each group stopped it, but I. I think um, we can expect that some patients aren't going to like these drugs. For they maybe their hypotension will be a problem, or maybe they just will get the the general infections. But I, I think it's I'm going to start trying, and I'm already using these a lot for various reasons. So um, especially if you're trying to get some blood pressure control, the person also has diabetes. Uh, it's it's a great option to it's a med you can multi-purpose. Yeah, especially, I mean, for your patients with diabetes who already have all the right ingredients mm -hmm. for HEFPEF, like they're, they're just sort of HEFPEF waiting to happen some of the times you kind of get that overall gestalt. So like yeah. I, this might push me to pick this agent over a GLP-1, whereas we didn't have quite that level of evidence before. So I, I think it's going to be practice changing that way too. Well, Paul, I wanted to tell you about another study that, I, that I'm going to be presenting, and this was called the GRASP trial. And Paul, you might think that has something to do with the hands. But no, it doesn't. It's actually a study of the shoulder sure. and uh, specifically uh, patients with rotator cuff disease. This was by Hopewell et al. And it came out in 2021, July. And this was this was an interesting design. The, the question here was, 
what is the most efficacious and cost-effective intervention for what is a very common thing? I mean, in how many every day in primary care clinic, if you're seeing a bunch of patients, you're probably seeing somebody that has shoulder pain. So they were looking at adult patients and they were specifically looking at people that had like new shoulder pain in the past six months and hadn't really received a bunch of recent treatments for it. And what they were doing is they were comparing both the short and long-term pain scores, this SPADI score, S-P-A-D-I, which is like shoulder pain and disability index, Paul, which it it, car- it it has a pain score and it has a disability score, Paul. So it's pretty pretty intuitive. Great. So it's not just a catchy name. Great. <laughs> it's <Fantastic>. not. <laughs> it's not. And uh, this was a two by two factorial design. Rahul, I'm definitely going to need your help with that. And uh, it was a randomized controlled trial, but it was unblinded. The authors mentioned that it would have been pretty hard to blind this trial because like, how could you blind uh, one of the, well, I'll tell you about it, why they couldn't. Some patients were getting up to six sessions with a physiotherapist versus a single session, Paul, where they just got like best practice advice. So they spent like 60 minutes with a physiotherapist. They gave them like a diary. They gave them some instruction on exercise that were pretty simple They had access to videos, but they just got that one session. The other patients got these six sessions. So I guess that would be pretty hard to, you know, to blind that. I feel like have we talked about this before? Have people done sham physical therapy? Like they just made up stuff? Have we discussed this? (laughs) Yeah, but I'm just saying like if you move your arms around, no, they'll help. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, I think it would be hard because like how how are you going to fake the fact that they they had five less sessions, you know? (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, you'd have the same amount. It would just be nonsense sessions. They would just be doing uh, absolutely okay. not helpful maneuvers. I think right. so maybe, maybe the authors, maybe the authors, uh, maybe it was a cop out. But anyway, so this was looking. So out of these four different treatments that they were looking at, there was either these people that had this progressive physiotherapy, people that had like a single best practice session with a physiotherapist. And then the other two factors were either you got a subacromial steroid injection or not. So Rahul, can you talk a little bit about that, like this two by two design um, and why they might have chosen that? Why sure, man. I'd be happy to. Um, the two by two factorial design is a really fascinating and useful design for a randomized trial. The reason this is done is that this allows investigators to simultaneously test two hypotheses, okay? And you can do this in a more efficient manner than conducting two separate trials, because patients basically uh, belong to both groups for each intervention, and that leads to four distinct treatment groups. The other thing that's nice about this design is it allows you to look for things like synergy or antagonism. Um, so that's kind of the the appeal of factorial designs is uh, you know you can test more than one thing. Uh, it's a it's a relatively <clears throat> efficient design. Um, one real world caveat to factorial designs is that even though we are in a position to be able to test for interactions in general, these study designs are often underpowered to detect those interactions. So basically you need to have a really strong signal that there is synergy or a really strong signal that there is antagonism in order for it to, to be found in a two by two factorial design. So that means that most of these trials are going to miss uh, real world interactions that are, are likely to be there. So that also helps a little bit with our critical appraisal of these trials. But, you know, we were kind of goofing around a little bit uh, talking about fake physical therapy. But one of my major gripes with this study 
was that I I do not think I understand why uh, they uh, did not include uh, a sham injection because we know from studies uh, you know that have sort of made the rounds like the the Orbita trial from a few years ago that there is a lot of uh, uh, effect from just the sort of uh, physical and emotional impact of undergoing a procedure and uh, for something like pain and disability that could absolutely be relevant so I, I think that that's one criticism I have that could have strengthened the design of this. Uh, otherwise pretty well designed study would be to have used a, a sham injection but that's that's the basics of the uh, the two by two design uh, it's nice it allows you to test two hypotheses simultaneously and in theory it allows you to identify any large interactions that are there so getting on to the results and you mentioned that having a sham might have made us more confident in the results especially but this this was actually a null trial. You know, we we could use the term negative. Rahul, you and I talked about that ahead of time. So I think there's a lot of useful information here. So I actually liked your suggestion to call this a null trial. So we didn't find that any of this was really better than the rest, like the progressive therapy versus this single best practice session with a physiotherapist. Neither one of those seemed to be better at any of the time points. And for the steroid injections, there was a slight uh, benefit seen for the steroid injection group at the eight-week time point, but not at the six-month or the 12-month time point. And the difference that was seen at that eight-week time point was actually, it didn't meet what they define. It was statistically significant, but it didn't meet their minimum clinically important difference between the groups. It was only about, on on a scale that's like 130 points total, it was only about like a less than five point difference between the two groups at that eight week point. So the conclusion of the authors was that, okay, the best, the, what seems to be most cost effective is what would be to give like a single steroid inject or the steroid injections. You could do that and you could do a best practice advice session, but, um, I, I don't really understand why they concluded that the steroids are that effective, um, in general in uh, Paul, every time I review these trials of steroid injections, I'm always like, why are we doing these so much? Like everyone loves them, but when you study them, you actually, it's very hard to find like a meaningful difference. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, Always pulling, I, same. Yeah, I always kind of want them to work. Like I feel like the the practice pattern that I see, and I, I would love to hear what, what other people see, is why don't you go for the steroid injection so you can tolerate the physical therapy? But if you're not seeing long term differences, I mean, like the short like the, the short term efficacy maybe kind of argues for that approach. But if it's not different past eight weeks, then honestly, who cares? And it's just one more specialist that maybe won't make any really long term differences. So I I'm with you. I don't find it all that compelling um, to give a steroid injection, especially when we know the possible harms from them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, all the patients in this trial did have some form of like physiotherapy and, you know, not all the patients got a steroid injection. So I think what they, what they did mention is that the patients who got the steroid injection, they seemed to benefit more if they were really struggling, like really had high pain, uh, pain scores and disability scores. And I think when we, Paul, when we talked with Dr. Center about the shoulder way back when, she basically told us one of the questions she asked is like, I ask people about night pain in their shoulder because if they have that, then she's more likely to, and if they're really struggling, she's more likely to give them an injection earlier and then get them into physical therapy and do all these things like NSAIDs and ICE, all, all the stuff that, you know, primary care doctors are pretty used to doing. So I think, you know, to jump to the hotcakes rating for this, I, I would say this is like maybe a 35 I think it was very good to know, Paul, that 
if you send, if you can get someone in one time with a physiotherapist or a physical therapist and they get a good session and they start doing some home exercises that, you know, pretty much no matter what you do, these people should be better at eight weeks, six, six months, 12 months. And, uh, they don't all have to go for injections and they don't all have to go for like ongoing physical therapy, which can be really disruptive to work yep. and life. And, and it can be expensive for some people with the co-pays. Any other thoughts, Paul? No, yet you, I agree with absolutely all that. Yeah, I think it's the, the burden of time more than anything else is what I hear. So this is a nice argument that just one and done, I think we'll appeal to a lot of patients and now we have some evidence for it. Well, Paul, buried in the text of this paper is an answer to your your question or your criticism about, you know, why are we still doing studies of, of steroid injections? Um, the, the authors did note that uh, only about 80% of people uh, were able to complete the exercise regimen uh, in comparison with like 95% of people were able to follow through to get the steroid injection. So, you know, if anything, I would expect that to attenuate any benefit of exercise that, that does exist. So it might just be driven purely by that sort of real world feasibility that it's easier to do one thing than six things, even if one of them is sticking a needle in you. <laughs> the other thing I just want to say, this this study is a great example of like the right way to have a null finding in a study, which is to decide upfront what is the minimum clinically important difference in a surrogate primary outcome. Um, because if we hadn't done that, then we might be faced dis with deciding whether or not, you know, a smaller difference in the SPADI score uh, actually matters for patients or not. So I think this is the this is a great approach to take when you're using uh, a continuous uh, outcome variable, and particularly one that's a surrogate endpoint. So even though this is a null finding, uh, Matt, I, I agree with your your issuing the word negative because there's a lot of useful findings here. It's it's just great to see like a well done MSK study. I know we're at time, but just I was just looking at the evidence for what we do for like neck and shoulder pain in general. And it's like, I see it. I don't know. No one's really looked at it. Who cares? Like, it's just like, there's so much that we still don't know in this year of Erlo 2021 that it's just nice to see a study that is is well-designed and thoughtful about stuff like this. I would also love to see kind of as a next step, the comparison of what we can do as primary care doctors kind of in the office with our with our sheets that we hand out of exercises and the super basic exercises. I wonder kind of uh, to what extent that would be sufficient because a lot of my patients aren't able to even make it to the physical therapist. Very good point. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P. And audience, you know that I love BetterHelp. I love this whole concept that nowadays therapy can be easily accessed online from the privacy of your own home it really lowers that barrier to entry, which for me was always uh, a big part of not getting myself into therapy sooner, and I really wish I had. BetterHelp is going to match you with a licensed professional therapist, and you can communicate with that therapist by your phone, you can do video chat, you can send them messages, and they're going to get back to you. You can do weekly calls. It's usually more affordable than traditional therapy, and financial aid is available. Now, BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today, and I want you to start living a happier life today. Audience, I want you to take care of yourself in our profession. There's, you know, we see some stuff, and you need to talk about it, so make sure you're taking care of yourself. Visit BetterHelp.com slash curb, that's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people are using BetterHelp that they're now recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. 
as a special offer for Curbsiders listeners, you can now get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. That's 10% off at betterhelp.com slash curb. Well, let's move on to two quick hot takes. And the first one here is, Paul, this is a follow-up to that that discussion we had at the, the Tri-Service ACP where we were talking about wimping out about not, not prescribing antibiotics for diverticulitis. And then uh, promptly after that, we got an article sent to us, which was the Dynamo study by a gastroenterologist at Northwestern. Uh, thank you for sending that to us. And uh, this was an article by Maura Lopez et al. It was the Dynamo study. And this was a study that, um, and, and just to give some background here, I was that I wasn't actually aware of is that that the 2020 colorectal surgery guidelines actually have in there that uncomplicated diverticulitis, which we will define, you, you actually don't have to treat it with antibiotics. Um, they actually recommend against it. And that there were two studies, one in 2012, one in 2017, of inpatients with uncomplicated diverticulitis. And those patients, uh, they did not find a benefit um, either in like symptoms or in uh, compli- preventing complications by treating with antibiotics. And Paul, is that consistent with what you've read about this too? Is that, are you willing to buy, are you buying this? Or are you still skeptical? No, I mean, it's, it, the evidence seems to be slowly accumulating. So it's, I, you know, I, I, I believe the evidence um, it just takes me a little time to catch up to actual practice, but yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm yeah. picking up what they're putting down. And and so Rahul, this Dynamo trial, it was uh, we're going to not go through it fully in depth, but it was a multi-center trial. It was randomized. This was another open label trial, and they were looking for non-inferiority of the patients who didn't receive antibiotics versus the treatment group that they got seven days of three times a day amoxicillin clavulonic acid. So anything here that was like a red flag to you that says you know, we can't really put too much stock in this. No, I think you have uh, said actually the most important things about this study, which is to just put into words what the design of the study means for the research question. And to design this as a non-inferiority study is basically asking the question, are no antibiotics not worse than giving antibiotics by at least some percentage? And in that percentage is the non-inferiority margin. And in this study, they set that at 7%. So uh, a positive study or a study where uh, non-inferiority was demonstrated in this case means that uh, no antibiotics are not worse than uh, giving uh, antibiotics by at least 7%. The the only thing that uh, struck me about this uh, study was um, just in terms of generalizability. It looks like all of the patients per the protocol were um, stabilized for 24 hours in the emergency department. Uh, during which time, you know, they could get IV uh, medications for pain control uh, and antibiotics if they uh, had oral intolerance. Um, so just for people to be aware, it's not a sort of purely outpatient uh, population and patients had to had to make it through that initial 24 hours with adequate symptom control in order to be in yeah. the study. So just something to think about for generalizability. And yeah, and these patients also had to be, they couldn't be pregnant. They had to be immunocompromised. Uh, immunocompetent. And then Paul, comorbidities, they define significant comorbidities as anybody with like diabetes with end organ damage, right. or if you had advanced kidney or liver disease, then, or, or like active cardiovascular disease, then, then you would be excluded from this too. So these were pretty yeah. healthy people in general, I think. Yeah. No, I do. I actually, the, the list was a lot shorter than I feel like I see for a lot of stuff. I was actually surprised at how 
how inclusive the study was, um, to yeah. be honest. And and the patients, you you had pointed this out in pre pre recording. They they could only have one or less SERS criteria. Like these patients do not, are not septic patients. Nor can I ask you, have you seen this like implemented? Like, are you can you recall any recent patients at Cashlec that you saw that that were admitted? They happen to have uncomplicated diverticulitis and they just like weren't treated for it. Honestly, no. Perhaps that's more. Uh, feature of my being mostly on the inpatient side, not as much in the ED, so not not uh, thinking right. about the outpatient uh, direction for uncomplicated diverticulitis, but yeah. it's, at least at, at Cashlack where I am, uh, it's, it's still uh, pretty conservative. Uh, often antibiotics will be peeled off very quickly um, after like a day or two of, of stabilization. Mm-hmm. And this, these patients were diagnosed, I should mention, by CAT scan yeah. as well. And they yep. had to have like a certain, there was a NEF score, yeah. uh, N-E-F-F, uh, a NEF score had to be zero on the CAT scan. So like no abscess. This, you know, so I think where this is probably going to come into play right now is that this is mostly emergency emergency room doctors. And if they're, if they're sending them back to you and, you know, the patient's Otherwise, feeling okay, maybe they just have a little bit of pain and and they don't have SERS criteria um, and they're, they're not otherwise sick, you can probably get away with not treating them. So we'll see. We'll keep an eye on it. This might expand, I, I think, to other, you know, this might expand beyond this, but um, probably in order to truly follow the trial, you'd need a CAT scan, which Paul, you, I don't think you and I always have this, especially you get, you get some of these patients like, oh, this, I've had diverticulitis before. This feels like my previous diverticulitis. Yeah, see, Matt, this is why you're in charge. These are all the points I, I was going to make. You know, I think typically these patients, like best case scenario, may present with a colonoscopy that showed diverticulosis, and then they come in with left lower quadrant pain and maybe some some um, bowel symptoms. Then you feel okay, like that. That might be the only way you're going to sense the diagnosis with any kind of promptness in the outpatient setting. So I, I think it's just the circumstances in the study. I think this is an important ER study right now. And as you say, as they continue to look at this, things may evolve, and we may have more confidence dealing with it primarily in the outpatient setting. Yeah, it it seems as we've talked about on previous shows, uh, you know, Nora, the the antibiotic show that that you and Beth were uh, had worked on, yeah, like we're just we're just pulling back and back on the antibiotics in general. So the the last thing, the last hot take is on the the twenty in twenty twenty one. There was an another update to the chest VTE guidelines, which I was really excited about, Paul, because you know we love some. You know, DVT <laughs> and PE, and yeah, we we like guidelines. You know, we're as you said, Paul. You just want you just want people to tell you what to do. That's yeah, the goal of really all activities. Absolutely. Yeah. So this guideline, they they again address this isolated subsegmental PE, which we've talked about on the show before, and for these people. If if you have isolated subsegmental PE, that basically means it's in these very small distal um, arteries, and that there's when you do a proximal DVT study, you don't find any residual clot. And if these patients are at low risk for progression or recurrence, then they're saying that um, you actually don't have to treat them um, in in that case. And so there's. The patients that would not meet this criteria would be people if they're pregnant, if they have active cancer, if they're immobile, or if they're like hospitalized because they're acutely ill for something. Those are people who have too high of a risk of progression of the clot that they already have or of recurrence. And I think, Paul, do you remember way back we talked to Bob Centaur about this? He was basically saying that like 
if they have like a single subsegmental and you go talk to the radiologist, a lot of the times they'll be like, yeah, you know what? Like we actually, this, I'm not even sure this is a real PE. And those are the patients, especially where you might be able to avoid the anticoagulation. Uh, I, I don't know how often, um, as in, I was outpatient doctors primarily, this doesn't come up that often for me, but Rahul, are you, are you seeing people follow this yet? You know, like what Paul mentioned, uh, even though I know that this is in the guideline update, I have not yet uh, seen people kind of break old habits. I feel like I still see um, small pulmonary embolisms get anticoagulated. Increasingly, people, as the guidelines disseminate, people are, are talking about this more and more. Uh, so I, I, I share Paul's feeling that even though we kind of know these things, um, I still see a lot of this happening. All right. Well, next point is... Paul, for cancer-associated VTE, still low-molecular low weight heparin is still king, right? I, I'm glad we're back to this framing device where I get to be wrong, and then you can correct me to make the teaching point. No, no, I, I was, I'm wrong. <laughs> I, it. It's me being wrong. And then- No, warfarin all day, Wado. I just I can't get enough warfarin. <laughs> that wasn't my- I didn't even give you that choice. You're not listening. All right. So, so uh, the DOAX- uh, are now recommended as first line over low molecular weight heparin for patients who have cancer associated VTE. And uh, I was excited to see that and that this was given strong, this was a strong recommendation with moderate certainty evidence. And the one caveat here, Paul, is that apixaban or low molecular weight heparin should be chosen if the patient has like a luminal GI malignancy. And that's because, um, and we can link to this, there was, there's been some signal that rivaroxaban maybe has increased risk for GI bleeding compared to apixaban. Um, any comments on that one before I move on to, I will talk about warfarin a little bit next, Paul. <laughs> no, I'm excited for warfarin, but also that's clearly great news. Like there's, there's much more convenient and less nerve wracking. So that's excellent. Yeah. I, I think that's good news for patients and it, it seems that it seems to be a class effect and and uh, so you can you can choose your favorite DOAC and uh, as long as they don't have a GI malignancy. The other thing is, you know, for warfarin, Paul, the really the last one of the last holdouts, at least in this guideline, is antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And the reason there is that it just seems like patients who are on DOACs they have a higher risk of recurrence. Although out there in practice. Um, I have seen some patients with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome who are on DOACs, and maybe that's just a convenience thing, and they're just not willing to take anything else. But uh, they they do recommend still sticking with vitamin K antagonists for the, for those patients. And forgive me for not knowing, do they differentiate between people who are triple positive antiphospholipid, like in terms of the serologic diagnostic criteria? Do they stratify like that, or is it just anyone with AP? They just said. They said anybody, um, so maybe it's buried in a supplement there. One thing they did say is especially if they have arterial thrombosis, then the, those patients especially seem to be at a higher risk for recurrence, and they were recommending this. But that's about uh, as far as I got with this. I'm not sure, Nora or Rahul. Nora, I know you're a hematology nerd. Any <laughs> other? Do you know? Yeah. Do you know more about this than me? I think uh, I think that uh, what Beth was saying off air was uh, exactly right, which is that uh, you you need to be uh, triple positive to actually uh, benefit more from warfarin than from DOAX. The other thing that, and the last part of this that I wanted to talk about is this extended phase anticoagulation, Paul, which is beyond the three-month period. And I'm not sure, Paul, for patients who have a provoked DVT in, in Cashlack North Northeast, are you mostly seeing patients on a three-month treatment course? 
between between three and six, it seems to be. And I'm not right. sure if that's just a <laughs> that's dependent on follow up or any specific guideline, to be honest. Right. Yeah. It seems sometimes it seems like people are like, oh, yeah, it's been five, six months. We probably should stop this thing. <laughs> yeah. Knock it off now. Yeah. <laughs> when was your surgery again? Right. So they they actually say in this guideline, they say extended phase anticoagulation, which is defined as it's it's beyond that three month mark. They're saying that that shouldn't be, should not be done for patients who have transient identifiable risk factors. So if you had, they they list some major and minor risk factors. Um, If you had those and now they're gone, then you don't have to extend it. But if you have a persistent risk factor, like you're still getting treated for an active malignancy, or if you had uh, no identifiable risk factor, what we call typically an unprovoked then those are patients where you could do this extended course of anticoagulation. And they, they're they like, you know what? The trials looking at this, they tend to go out like two to four years. We don't really know what happens beyond that, but most patients are on these lifelong when they're in that boat. Is is that consistent with your practice, Paul? Yeah, for sure. And what I was excited about here, Paul, although I will say this was a weak recommendation, very low certainty evidence is that uh, they, they actually mentioned using apixaban at the low dose, like 2.5 twice a day, or rivaroxaban at the, the 10 milligram daily dose um, as that extended phase, phase anticoagulation. And, I, and I'm, I think what they're trying to do here is thread that needle, Paul, between like <laughs> preventing the clot, yep. but you know, not too bleedy, not too anti-bleedy. Sure, right. as Just uh, Goldilocksing the bleeding <laughs> risk. Yeah, no, it's great. The Matherly, the Matherly discussion of bleeding, anti-bleedy or too bleedy or too anti-bleedy, I think was what he was saying. So, uh, and then finally, Paul, if someone has an unprovoked or if they have like a persistent risk factor and they just are like, doc, I don't want to be on any anticoagulation, but, but I'm willing to take aspirin. That's the one time that they're recommending that you put the <laughs> <laughs> that you put the patient on aspirin to prevent VTE. Which I on thought, what dose? Uh, I I think it was just the eighty one. I'd I'd actually have to double check, but I was assuming oh, see, it was just the eighty one. Because this is seventeen more trials we can do. We can do like eighty three versus eighty one <laughs> milligrams. We can do eighty seven. Like Weight the world's based. Our oyster. I don't. Yeah. I don't yeah. even think is... it said a dose. I, I didn't see it in there. So <laughs> it's just whatever. Yeah, just audience, yeah. check the show notes. Uh we're we're it's it's late, we're tired, <laughs> but uh we will we will look that up and see if we can find it for the show notes. But otherwise, uh I think that's all I had to say about this. So very exciting. Check those out. I'm I'm always excited when new guidelines come out there, Paul, especially ones that as high yield as these. Yeah. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy? Oh, we didn't delegate the yummy. Too bad. <laughs> get your show notes to thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Uh, plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, uh, spearheaded by the amazing Dr. Nora Toronto, that recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, uh, all of us who you've heard here, and to the great Beth Garbs Garbatelli, who is producing the heck out of this show, as well as on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on our Instagram. Tima Karganov is on the website. And Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. A reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. With all that, 
Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. I've been Dr. Nora Plout Toronto. And I've been Dr. Rahul Ganach. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're doing great, everybody. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank the fantastic Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and good night. 